Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm Brandi Clark, and I'm a singer-songwriter um, who tells the truth. That's what that's um, that's what I strive to do. Let's just uh, stop the interview there. She pushed her wedding ring across the counter and said, "Tell me that it's worth more than I think." There's a bus to Baton Rouge leaves in an hour. $90 cash buys me a seat. Let's start from the beginning, which is you coming out of Washington State hearing Patsy Cline as a kid. Today, I read at least that this was the anniversary of Patsy Cline making her debut at the Grand Ole Opry. So I feel like it's very fitting that we're talking today. Wow, I did not know that. And I, and I pride myself in knowing a lot about Patsy Cline. Yeah, I... More than even anything I heard on the radio as a kid, or in the in my parents' record collection, two things really shaped who I would become musically and, and just my taste: the movie *Coal Miner's Daughter* about Loretta Lynn, and the movie *Sweet Dreams* about Patsy Cline. And those movies, I think, because not only did I hear their music, but I saw how it was made, especially in Coal Miner's Daughter, you know, with the scene where Loretta's working in the garden and writing Honky Tonk Girl. Before then, I didn't really know that people wrote songs. I just thought songs just always existed. And so, and then with, you know, Sweet, with the movie Sweet Dreams, those those songs that Patsy Cline recorded to me, are, they're still some of my favorites. Crazy's my favorite song of all time and just timeless. And I saw that movie and thought, ooh, I'd love to sing and write songs like that. again, everybody. I'm Zach Lupiton. You're listening to The Show on the Road. This week, we take you through the tunnel of love and heartbreak with one of Nashville's supreme lady songsmiths, Brandy Clark. Now, Brandy and I come from very different places, but we were both basketball-obsessed kids who started playing guitar as a fun diversion and never thought the call to write songs from the heavens would take over our entire lives. Indeed, Brandy actually had a scholarship to play basketball in college. Like Brandy, I also fell in love with Patsy Cline growing up, hearing how she harnessed that ache deep within her, transforming true pain into joy and catharsis. Well, it's a gift that Brandy, like Patsy, has in spades. Can she write a devastating pop hook for Casey Musgraves or Sheryl Crow or Miranda Lambert? Yes, she can do that too. But today, we finally get to dive into her amazing solo work, and I'm so glad I unearthed this talk from my fractured hard drive. Her songs are truly special, and I can't wait for you to hear them. Anyway, I'm so glad you could spend a little of your year with us. Uh, Please leave us a kind review on the podcast's page. And if you're in Denver on New Year's Eve, come see my Crew Dust Bowl revival. We're playing the Filmo Auditorium. 
And don't forget to buy merch from your favorite bands this year. 20% off DustBowlRevival.com. Okay, enough of me going on and on. Here she is now, Brandy Clark. life is a record it there's this embracing of the sad songs and their importance in life and that they're necessary and they're the deeper moments of existence maybe well yeah i think i think it's where we can all connect i think part of why people love patsy klein in particular is we've all felt that way that that ache you said ache that ache and her voice just lended itself to that to telling that story and you know what I, I think it probably was a lot of her story I think it's a lot of all of our story and there's something we connect we can connect on our sadness we can connect on our happiness too but but I think in those songs those sad songs you feel a little less alone in that emotion you know because part of why you're sad is you in, the, in those moments, you don't feel like anyone else feels the way you do. And and maybe, you know, well, not maybe, the person you're in love with definitely doesn't. You know, usually they've left you or, you know, it's not worked out. And so to turn on a song like Patsy Cline, like She's Got You, you know, you're like, oh, I'm not the only woman who's lost their love, you know, and had to see somebody else have it. That we used to share. And they still sound the same As when you were here The only thing different The only thing new I've got the records She's got you The song that she debuted at the Opry was... A church, a courtroom, and goodbye. Oh, you know, good one. And it just—it almost is the entire arc of a tragedy happening in one song. You know, where you're seeing this person that you invested in and you loved, you know, legally cutting themselves off from you forever, and. I read a little bit that your new record is sort of, you know, a breakup album in a way, but you didn't realize that until maybe it was already done. I didn't realize it until the weekend before we started working on it. And I think it's because I was too close to it. And I had gone through a breakup of a very long relationship. And, you know, I'm always just right every day. Most days I'm writing. Um, not every day I'm finishing something. Not every day I'm writing something good. But I'm writing most days. And I'm just writing what's in the room on every day. And I, um, I so, you know, just writing songs. And, and while I was going through that, writing songs. And before that, writing songs. Cause some of these songs are older. And uh, when, when Jay Joyce, who produced the record, called me the weekend before, and he had been living with the songs, and, and, but he was the last person to live with them in the mix. You know, it was myself and the other writers and then a label and management and everybody involved in the choosing of the songs. And uh, he, he said to me, well, this is a breakup record. 
And I thought, wow, it is, you know, and I'm such an overthinker. Then I'm like, well, do, do big, does bigger boat and long walk work in the thinking of this is a breakup record? He's like, oh yeah, we need those songs. You know, we, we need, we need those songs. It's going to all work. Um, but yeah, I didn't realize it till right before. And it going in with that knowledge of, okay, this is a breakup record. It helped us shape the way the, the shape of the record, like where it began and where it ended in the middle and, you know, all those things, um, that, that I think make a, make a complete project. Let's go to that first opening track because I'll be the sad song again is this feeling for me of acceptance and um, maybe being able to have that bird's eye view of your own life, which is a very hard thing to do. Um, And someone who's such a intuitive and emotive writer like yourself, I think has figured out a way to mine the pain that you went through and you know a, a over a decade long relationship it's i mean that's a marriage mm-hmm. you know i mean that's a very hard thing to move through and yet you were able to sort of at least for me to express in that song that it was worth it in its own way like the pain and the uh the depth of feeling it was worth it because otherwise this song and the feeling that came from the song wouldn't exist. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I believe that grief is the price of love. You know, however much you love somebody is however much you're going to miss them. Whether it's the breakup of a relationship or you lose somebody to death, it's just however strong your love was is the, is how deep your your grief is going to be, but it's worth it. And, 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 you know, not just for the love part, not just for the highs, but for the lows, you know, um, I don't think we're meant to always be happy. I was just telling my nephew that we were told we should always be happy, you know, by society, but, but we're just not meant to always be happy. I mean, I think we're meant to have moments of joy and, and days of happiness, but we all have to go through different things. And I think that those valleys are as important as the peaks. Some night when it's raining had this conversation with my wife last night um i don't know if you've ever (laughs) had those conversations with someone you're with in a relationship about the previous heartaches that you've gone through or exes etc oh yes yes but like you know it doesn't always go well but it's i think there's a point in a relationship where you can honestly talk to the person you love and say yes i loved this other person and they broke my heart, or they ran out of me, they cheated on me, and I'm I'm actually okay with that now. It's taken maybe 15 years, 10 years, but I, as an artist myself, as a songwriter, I am secretly grateful for that wellspring of pain that is easily accessed at any moment 
Whereas before, when you were young, and, you know, nothing really had happened to you like that, you were faking it in a way, you know? And now it's like, you're not faking it, it was real. That's a really good way to put it. You're just, yeah, you're faking it. Like all those high school relationships, which, I mean, some people meet and their soulmate young and they they stay together and I don't want to discount that those relationships can't be meaningful but most of us in those relationships we're just practicing um for the game you know that, that becomes our our real adult relationships and um that's a, such a good point you just made my my question for you also is when you're in a relationship and people know that you're a writer. You've written for Casey Musgraves and people who are all over the radio. Are they afraid that something is going to be mined from these private moments and all of a sudden they're going to hear it on the radio? You know, I don't think so. I, I could be wrong. I, I mean, I can't get inside everybody's psyche, but I don't think anybody I've ever been with has been worried about that. Um, you know, um, my partner of 15 years that that, you know, was the big breakup on this album. I mean, I made sure and talked to her about it before um, before it was recorded, before I talked about it being a breakup record, even more than before it was recorded. And um, she was great with it. And, you know, it's not all all about that. There are co-writers on every song, so they're, they have their input as well. Um, yeah, I, I hope I answered that right. But I, But I usually don't, you know sit around I mean everywhere I go I'm I'm hearing songs don't get me wrong and things that people say but um I'm not like laying in bed and thinking tell me something I can put in a song you know tell me something really vulnerable that I can put in yeah, a song yeah. um so I hope that answered that well yeah you said I think I, I read also that there is a limitation to you know autobiographical writing there's a whole big tumultuous world out there that if you constantly are sketching your own face <laughs> onto the pad eventually you've seen all the angles you know yeah and I think and I think that while this new record is maybe the most personal that you've done um there's big themes in here you know and you know you don't necessarily f- fit certain stereotypes of a uh you know, major label country writer and singer, you know. Um, and when you've written songs from Miranda Lambert and, and, and folks that are maybe a little more in the mainstream, do the Music Row people in Nashville um, request that it's more heteronormative when the love songs come out? Because, you know... Actually, you know, I get more flack, I feel like, from... Um the gay community that my songs are too hetero normal. Um, (laughs) I subtle. Yeah. I try to write songs in a way. And when I, I feel like really great when, when this happens, I feel like I've really done my job. I try to write songs in a way that anybody could put themselves in it. Right. Whether it's a, a gay person, a straight person, a white person, a black person, like just anybody with a heartbeat could put themselves in it. That's always my goal. I don't always achieve that. Um, and, you know, and like I said, I just kind of write what's in the room. When you mentioned Miranda Lambert, um, I've had a couple things on her. I've had one hit on her. Um, that wasn't set out to write a hit for Miranda Lambert. It was just writing that idea 
of Mama's Broken Heart that was in the room that day that was actually something that Shane McAnally, one of the co-writers, Casey Musgraves being the other, wanted to write about his sister and his mother. And so, you know, I, I don't go, I, I, I do my best work when I'm not really trying to do anything but tell a great story. I screamed his name till the neighbors called the cops. I numb the pain at the expense of my liver. Don't know what I did next. All I know I couldn't stop. Word got around to the butterflies and the Baptist. My mama's phone started ringing off the hook. I can hear her now saying she ain't gonna have it. Don't matter how you feel it on song that you wrote with uh, Casey Musgraves that became sort of an accidental anthem for the um, <laughs> gay rights movement, and it was played a lot, the uh, Folly Arrow. How did that happen? So that's a great example of something. It, that song, the life of that song is way bigger, I mean, than I ever dreamed it, and that I think any of us thought when it was written, it came out of, you know, Casey, two things. She had written, um, what the way I remember it was she had written a little, she had a friend that was, I think, moving to Europe for the summer or maybe maybe for longer. I, it's been so long now, I don't totally remember. But I she had written her a little note that said, kiss lots of boys and smoke lots of joints and follow your arrow. And... I also remember her saying they were they were at the tail end of making her first record, same trailer, different park. I also remember her saying that she wanted arrows in the artwork of um, of of her album, and so that's really where that started. And none of us thought of it as a as a you know as a gay anthem. It makes me proud that it is, and that you know I've had so many people tell me how much that song means to them, and I'm just really happy that I got to be a part of it. it's the it's the choice right it's saying you know make lots of noise kiss lots of boys or kiss lots of girls if that's what you're into yeah it's not sort of forcing anything on people it's just saying like hey we're all uh as bob dylan <laughs> says in his new record we all contain multitudes you know well and at the time we wrote that song we felt like the most controversial thing about it was smoke lots of joints you know, like that yeah. was that was the point. roll up a joint or don't. That's what it was. Roll up a joint or don't. We thought that was way more controversial than kiss lots of boys or kiss lots of girls if that's something you're into. Um, so that's another example of it. You know, it meant something different to the world than it did to us in the room. Well, when a song like that wins, you know, the Country Music Award Best Song of the Year, you know, that sort of signals a little bit that maybe the good old boys club of Nashville is opening its mind a little bit, but, um, you know, you've experienced your share of, uh, disappointment with your own music, not necessarily hitting the top of the charts, like some of the people you've written for. Uh, and there's still constant disappointment that women are not more represented in country hit radio, you know, and why, why do you think that is so hard to change? I don't know. 
I mean, if I had the answer to that question, I think a lot of women would be really happy. I don't, I don't know what the disconnect is, you know, and I've sort of given up on trying to figure that out for my own self and just, and just find my audience. Um, and not to say that I, that I didn't and don't have supporters at country radio. I just didn't have enough, um, on a big enough level to push a single through into being a bigger hit. But, um, it, it's, it's a, it's an equation I had to quit trying to figure out because it nearly drove me crazy and, and was not good for my creativity, you know, to worry about that sort of thing. All I can really worry about is the music I make and working as hard as I can to get it out there. Um, I, you know, I could lose years of sleep wondering why didn't they play me? Why, and why don't, why don't they play this girl or that girl? I don't know. I mean, someone like, uh, Dolly Parton, you know, in her early career is writing about abortion. She's mm-hmm. writing about divorce. She's writing about stuff that you would never think would be sung by a, you know, blonde ingenue singer, but she was doing it from a very young age. And I think you're covering some of that ground now. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I've always thought of country music as truth telling adult music. And, you know, some people call that now Americana, um, and that country has shifted into into something different than that. But I think, you know, whatever it is, whether it's country, Americana, I think my stuff's going to always fall where the stories are being told, you know, and the darker stories. I, that's just what I, not, I mean, not always. I, I can, I can write a tongue in cheek thing very well too. I, but I, but all of it has to have some truth to me. And, you know, the truth is if, if riding around in trucks and, you know, if that was my truth, that's what I'd be writing. Um, it's just not. Well, you do come from a very small town. I mean, you're. Oh, I've Morton, probably Washington. ridden in more trucks than a lot of the people singing about yeah. it. I mean, if we're being really honest. <laughs> so your town had, what, a, th- a thousand people or so in it, yes, right? Yes, it did. And you were, you know, you started writing, you know, at a pretty young age, but you also were kind of a basketball star. I was, I mean, for a small town, yeah, I was, you know, I was really good for, for where I was, and, and I was really dedicated to that, and I think it's a lot of why I've been able to stick with this music career, is that I learned a lot of discipline at a, at a really young age, and um, self-discipline from, from sports, I played all sports, basketball was really where I excelled, um, but I take a lot of that into what I do now as you know just as far as work ethic and teamwork and you know all that stuff factors in I'm really fortunate I had that background yeah I'm glad that um the little art school that I played basketball at in high school I'm glad that we got our ass kicked like every night because our coach for some reason thought we should be in this um you know larger Chicago um conference and it was like deeply humiliating, but also like when we did win, it was so special. Like, you know, like we, we, we had somehow conquered like all our demons in one night, you know, because we finally had a chance to celebrate. Whereas every night we would take the, you know, the train home and just be like, man, I am so bad at everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of that, you know, it, it, it all 
turns us into who we are. I mean, we learn more from our losses than our wins. That's just the truth. And that's probably why, you know, we go back to what you were talking about with the sad songs. It's probably why some of us love those songs so much because we've learned from those love gone wrongs more than we learn when it goes right. And, and they also teach us so that when it does go right, we can, we can treat it better. The song uh, Who You Thought I Was off your new record um, has that peek into your, maybe your childhood psyche where, you know, you're like, I wanted to be a cowboy and I wanted to be Elvis, right? Mm-hmm. Which is maybe not something most girls would say. Well, see, that's a that's a great, you know, you talk about heteronorms. Um, right. That song was actually written for a guy. And right before I went in to record, uh, I played it for my manager because there was just something tugging at me about that song. And so I played it for her and she said, I think you need to record that, but don't change, don't change, don't say cowgirl, you know, keep right. it, the keep it the way it is. And, um, that was, that was a, I'm really, I'm really glad that she said that because it's a proud moment for me. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to tell you that this week, the show on the road is brought to you by Wild. That's W-Y-L-D. It's a very cool Austin, Texas-based art gallery that exclusively features art from Native American creators. Are you having trouble figuring out a unique gift to give the unique people in your life this year for the holidays? If you go to wild.gallery like I did, you'll see they have an amazing array of original fine art, posters, and prints at all price points. And let me tell you, this stuff is legit. Some of the artists at Wild even have work in the permanent collections of museums like the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian in D.C. Do yourself a favor and for once, actually support artists. Don't just get more mass-produced plastic pap on Amazon. Actually support living indigenous creators. Just go over to wild.gallery, that's W-Y-L-D dot gallery, or call up Ray at the gallery in Austin to set up an in-person showing. Tell them Z from the show on the road podcast sent you. Okay, that's it for me. On to the show. Do you remember the first thing that you really wanted to be as a kid? You know, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I do remember that. And uh, that was that's my earliest. I remember, you know, when you do career day, um, in like first second grade and I wish I could find it but there's a picture of me and I have this little stuffed dog and a stethoscope and a white coat on um I mean thank god I I, that would be too heartbreaking for me um of a career and I don't necessarily think I have the brains for it anyway the science brain for that but um but that's the first memory of of something I wanted to be that I have what did your folks do? So my dad worked in the timber industry. They both worked in the timber industry, actually. Um, my dad was a logger. Like He was actually killed in a logging accident when I was in my early 20s. Um, and then my mom, she worked, you know, several part-time jobs, but the long, but when we were growing up, and then we got a little older, and she went back to work full-time, and, and she was a human resource manager for uh, a cedar fencing mill. Do you think that you could have made it in the logging industry yourself? 
I don't know. I mean, here's what I really believe about myself, and, and I don't mean this arrogantly. I think whatever I wanted to do, I would have figured out a way to do it. I'm, I'm not afraid to work hard. Um, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty smart. Um, I'm not, I'm not the smartest person in any room, but smart enough to hold my own. And, and mostly it's that work ethic. I, I would have worked my way into whatever I wanted to do. And I actually did work at that, that cedar fencing mill that my mom worked at for a summer. And, and I realized in that, you know, I was, I was sort of on the edge of not going back to school and it, it made me like, okay, I, I know I don't want to do this, you know, is what I, what I was thinking. I, what I love about what I do is every day is a little different. Even if I'm writing songs every day, sometimes I'm by myself, sometimes I'm co-writing, and it's never with the same person day after day after day, unless we're working on a specific project, but even that is never, you know, incredibly long. And so I like the, um, diver the, like, the diversity of what I get to do, and I knew, I learned from that mill job that I would not be good in something where I literally feel like I'm doing the same thing all day. And your mom encouraged you pretty young to start writing songs, right? You started playing guitar at around, what, 10 years old? I was nine, I think, yeah, nine or 10, somewhere in there. She, yeah, my mom's really musical. And so she, my dad always, you know, fostered the athletic side of me and my mom fostered the musical side of me. And they both were supportive of both sides, but I had great parents, you know, just I, that's probably the biggest gift I've had in my life and my parents. And, um, but my mom, she could really help me a lot with music like when I was taking lessons even though she didn't play guitar at the time she could help me you know with reading music and time and, you know time and key signatures and those kinds of things um and I also saw her, her in her someone who could play full songs so you know I wanted to be that and do that uh so yeah she was she was probably and still is my biggest champion yeah, and I, I watched that uh, Tiny Desk show that you did, which is really beautiful. Um, and you played some songs from your record, um, Big Day in a Small Town, including that uh, song you, you know, kind of wrote for your dad uh, since you've gone to heaven, mm -hmm. you know, about seeing the the, the camaraderie and, and the emotion that comes together in these small towns, you know. You know, and your dad maybe wasn't famous or uh, any sort of, you know, national hero, but for that small town, he was, in a way. You know, they had to fill the whole gym with people they couldn't even... I was you know. just talking about this on an earlier call, completely different project, but are we, but it, it's a musical that I've been working on. We were talking about small towns, and I used that example. Like, yeah, it. There's that says a lot. I mean, it says a lot about my dad, and it says a lot about the town I grew up in. You know, just... Um, People, you know, people care about each other there and, you know, honk when they drive by your house. I remember when we would have like cousins from out of town, we'd be out in the yard and people would honk when they would drive by. And I remember a cousin saying, why does everybody honk when they drive by here? Well, it's because we all know each other, you know. Um, and that song did, uh, that, that song, Since You've Gone to Heaven, it was inspired by my dad's death. That's where it started. You know, it took years to write it and it was something I ended up bringing into a co-writer. But my dad passed away, or I shouldn't say passed away, he was killed in an accident. Um, 
in, right before the July before 9-11. And when 9-11 happened, I was still very raw in that grief. And then the whole world or our whole country was grieving. And I remember watching CNN and seeing the ticker tape go by. And I thought, man, since my dad has died, the world has gone to hell. And that's where that started. And um, one night I was driving to Tunica, um, driving back from Tunica, gambling with friend and collaborator Shane McAnally. We were just getting to know each other, really. And we started talking about how when a when a when a big figure in your family dies, it kind of blows the family apart. And so that's that's where it started. And we just wrote it. There's a little bit of both of us in there. Signs in every storefront. Seems like everything's for sale. They say the market's bouncing back, but it's sure hard to tell. Since you've gone to heaven, the whole world's gone to hell. And I hate you had to leave us, but glad you didn't live to see this the broken pieces of the north. Yeah, I remember my grandfather, when he died um, in, outside New York City, you know, he wasn't obviously an, a known figure in, in New York or, or beyond, but he just had this uh, reputation of being a good, honest person that people could rely on. He was like the bedrock, you know, factory worker, always there for you type guy, you know? And just the people coming into that funeral home, like shaking, you know, the family's hands and giving condolences, just saying like how much they respected him and how much they, you know, admired him, you know? And it really showed sort of how being, you know, a honest and hardworking person is enough. Like you don't have to be a a star to have people love and respect you. It's, you know, I think it's a lot more than we give it credit, just being a good person. And it's real simple and I think it's real hard, you know? And I think it's, it's probably harder than being, um, I mean, these days I feel like, you know, if, if you're willing to be shocking enough, you can be Insta famous real quick, you know? And, um, I think it's, you know, I think, so I think the kids growing up right now, like I've, I have my nephew with me right now from Alaska and he's a really good kid who's, who's being raised very differently part huge. I mean, a lot because of my brother and sister-in-law, but also because of the part of the world he lives in. And, you know, he, he, he's, he's on his phone, but not quite as much as as a lot of other people and especially people his age that have never not known of the Instagram world and he he's a good person and and I think it it's and I mean I didn't mean to get off on him but I I've been really been noticing that and just how important that is and how in this world we live in we don't put a real we don't I don't think we put a big enough spotlight on that of just being a good person and doing the right thing 
in the kind thing. On the other side of that, you know, growing up in a small town, did you feel like you always were a bit different, you know, being someone who maybe was a little more artistic and, and then not straight? You know, is that something that was hard being in a small town or did people embrace you even well, when you were young? Well, that's such a great question. I always felt like there, that I was a little different and not different in a good way. I also want to say I felt like there was something about me that just didn't quite fit in, even though I did. But sports were a way for me to fit in. And it probably was that I was was gay and I just didn't know it because I didn't that wasn't something I realized. I was a late bloomer in a lot of ways in life and wasn't something I realized because honestly, it wasn't a choice I even saw. And I don't by saying choice, I, I don't want to. Being gay for me was not a choice. I I 100% was born the way I am, but I I didn't I wasn't tapped into any of that, and so that probably had a lot to do with the part of me that felt like, man, I just don't know if I even though I love this place so much, I I do feel different. Um, and then I think too, you know, I, my dreams were always always things that were going to take me away from where I was from, you know, first dream being sports and basketball. And I got a scholarship and moved away and got really homesick and moved home. But then music, um, was definitely going to take me away. There wasn't a big outlet for the specifically the kind of music I was making where I was at. Let's talk about some bad people now, because there's three songs that I want to dive into a little bit from each one of your records okay. that are, <laughs> I think are interrelated, whether or not you thought they would be or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, starting with Long Walk, which is off the new one, and then Daughter, which is on the Big Day in a Small Town, and then Illegitimate Children, which I love on uh, your first record, 12 Stories. It's like the calling out of someone's bullshit. Well, and feeling like maybe that you're okay if a little revenge is taken out on them. <laughs> I've never thought about those three songs being related, but they really are. You know, I love that you brought up Long Walk. That's the first song I've put on a record that's a kiss off to a, a fr- not even a friend, but somebody that's talking about in my in my mind, you know, what that song is to me is talking to somebody who's talking trash about me, you know, and judging me. I've never had a song like that personally, where I'm talking to a mean girl, you know, and so I love that that's on there. Daughter, definitely, like, talking to that guy. That song came out of, I was writing with Jesse Joe Dillon and Jeremy Spillman, and uh, one of them was telling, it was Jesse Joe, was telling the story about a guy we knew and the way he was treating some girls at a bar, and you know, there was, oh, I hope this happens to him. I hope that happens to him. And I said, I hope he has a daughter. You know, that that will be the ultimate revenge. Um, and then Illegitimate Children, that came up. My co-writer, Deanna Walker, um, and I, we were talking, and she was she had been at a bachelorette party, and she was talking about all the girls that they were on one. It was back when they had just started doing the, the um, oh, like the, tricycle taverns I guess it's not tricycle taverns but where people sit on the you you know what I'm talking about dangerous things and she was talking about and -and so-and-so started making out with this guy she didn't even know and all this stuff and I said and this is how illegitimate children are born and um and that's where that song came from I mean all of those came from very real places she's getting hammered on Alabama slam 
Because it really was, you know, I've heard somebody was talking a little smack about me and felt, you know, oh. And I had, it, it was fresh in my mind. And then I saw where where some artist was really being trashed on and I it really bothered me. And I wrote to the guy that had said it, you know, you need to take a long walk off a short pier. And when I said that, I thought, I better write that tomorrow or somebody else is going to. Um but both of those, they, they, or all three of those, came from real, real things. You say in, in Long Walk, you know, also that I'm my mother's daughter. Um, did your mom also take no crap? Totally. My mom, <laughs> my mom's one of the nicest people that you will ever meet, but she knows how to stick up for herself. And, you know, I definitely got that from her. Street, dirty laundry out for everyone to see. You're a middle aged mean girl, always throwing stones in that old Walmart lawn chair. High and mighty throne. Well, I'd give you grace, but why even bother? Cause after all, you can walk on water, so take it. What do you think you would tell yourself now? What would you tell your teenage self as you were starting to become a young woman? You know, I would tell my my self, my teenage self to just be me. You know, to resist the urge to try to be anything else and to not waste time, not ma- not waste so much time on what I think other people think of me. Yeah, because you're always comparing, and, and we do that now as adults, I think, with social media. We're always totally. comparing ourselves against sort of the um, slightly bigger success that someone else has or the bigger house that they have or the cooler car that they have or the record deal that they have. Totally. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine that battled um, bulimia and anorexia. I know this is completely off topic, but I think it, it really... It, it 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 also you know um, is relevant to what we're talking about. And she was talking to me about it one time, and I said, "So did you just see? Did everybody just look fat to you?" And she said, "You know, Brandy, I only saw people who were thinner than me." 
And I think that's what happens to all of us, whatever it is. You're right. You only, you only notice the people on social media that are this much more successful than you or that are way more successful than you. You know, you don't notice all the people, like when you get something, you don't think about the people who didn't. You only think about who got more. So when you started writing songs for other folks, you know, um, you had a breakout with writing a couple songs for Reba McIntyre's uh, record, All the Women I Am. Uh, yes. cry and the day she got divorced when you saw your your songs being lifted into a much bigger realm where people were noticing did that give you confidence to start trying to make your own music um on a bigger scale you know it it really didn't because all of that happened right at the same time you know i found out that reba had cut those two songs um, and that I was going to get to make a record all in the same week. Is my dog, can you hear that? It's all right. It's charming. Okay. She, I don't know what's going on, but she, she wants to be heard on here. Um, anyway, so I, I had worked for so long and just was really kind of beginning to think, oh, maybe nothing's going to happen. I mean, it didn't keep me from working, but this, like I said, the same week that those two songs got recorded by Reba, and I had had a lot of things before that. They just fell off records, or they were failed singles on other artists. And for me, everything started to really happen all at once. You know, I and, and so that was, it was surreal. Is there an artist right now that you wish you could uh, write for or tour with? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, I feel pretty lucky I get to write with a lot of artists that really inspire me. And as far as touring, oh man. Maybe someone we wouldn't think would pair with you, but would pair perfectly. That's such a good question. You know, I've always wanted to tour with a legend like James Taylor. Mm. You know, I'd love to go out in front of somebody like that. Um, that would be a real dream for me. Um, you know, I, I, this guy, you wouldn't necessarily think, but Billy Joel, because he's such a songwriter, I feel like his crowd would like what I do. Yeah. Well, you did record uh, Bigger Boat with a legend. Yes, Randy Newman, Randy Newman yes. Um, I would like to see that little run. That'd be, a, now that'd be, a, there. I don't know if he is or not, but that'd be an amazing show. It'd be an amazing show to be a part of. But that, uh, <laughs> that back and forth, there's a, the part where you say <laughs> we're on the Titanic but we think it's the Ark <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I was writing with him or, or did he just, he just sang on your song he just did sang, he... I wrote that with Adam Wright who's an amazing writer uh, Randy did change a line There was a we had the shit's been hitting the fan a little closer to home and he changed it to give me that hammer somebody hold my coat but he didn't want writer's credit it was really sweet, he said you know I'm not one of those rappers that needs writer's credit Part of me kind of wished he would have, just so Adam and I could have said that we wrote a song with Randy Newman. Um, but he 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 was fantastic to work with, um, just all the way around, a pro and one of those guys that you know you're, they're, they always say like, oh, don't meet your heroes. He was pretty cool to meet.
it was funny when I was on Spotify looking through your stuff. For some reason, it recommended um, at the end of your record. You will you will also like this album, Disney Hits in Indonesia. Oh my gosh. And I was like, why would that be the case? But maybe because Randy Newman writes for Toy Story. But I was like, that makes no sense. But it was, and I started listening to these Indonesian Disney songs, and it was, it was pretty amazing. That's crazy. I would have never, ever, ever known that. That's, I mean, I guess anything paired with Disney is good. Disney's a, Disney's a great brand to be associated with. I would never think of my music as fitting in, in with Disney. All right, top Disney film, go. Don't even think about it. Uh, Lady and the Tramp. Oh, controversial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I love the Disney classics, honestly. Little Mermaid's pretty good, too. I think my first uh, musical reckoning was the soundtrack to Jungle Book. Mm, great one. That my parents had to stop me from singing I want to be like you with the, you know, the orangutan mm-hmm. trying to learn how to make fire. Like, they're like, can you please stop singing that over and over again? For the love of God. That's amazing. What is your biggest fear right now in your life? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think my biggest fear is that that we're not going to figure this virus out and that it's going to keep us in this state of semi lockdown. I, my fear is, is not my, my, my fear is that it's going to be like a wave at a football stadium. Mm. And from the start, and I'm not running this country. So, you know, of course it's easy for me to say how I would run it. I have thought, why don't they just shut us all down for a month? Like really shut us down in ways that I would hate, you know, but why don't they do that? And then it'll go away. If it doesn't have a host, it you know it, it, it now look all it would take is one person coming in to infect us all. But but I I fear that it's going to stay. All all the states are going to be in different different levels of lockdown, and it's just going to go on like this. Not until the end of this year, but for years. And I and I you know I don't like the virtual world. I don't. I mean, I, I do my best with it, with Zoom calls and Zoom rights, but I don't enjoy not being able to touch people and sit down and have a meal with somebody and, you know, hug somebody. I, I don't enjoy that. And and I don't know what that does to us long-term as a society. I, I worry about that. Is there a time where you felt that music saved you and what, what was that song? Is there a song that lifts you up whenever you really, really need to be lifted up? You know, I would say that music really saved me in my early 20s. And not that those were bad years, but I was figuring myself out. And I was also, like I, like I said, I had, played, I had played basketball and all sports, but, you know, I, I went to college on a basketball scholarship to begin with. And when I stopped playing, I really didn't know who I was. I really had all my identity wrapped up in that. And, and then I've shifted to music. And, and, I, and, I, and during the time when I was grappling with, okay, who am I now if I'm not, the, if I'm not that person that's this good athlete? Um, music saved me and, and became, took the place of the passion I had had in the other area 
So, and I, and I can't say that it was one song. It was, it was a lot of, a lot of amazing records at that time. And just, you know, diving into music, that would be a time when it really, really, really held me up. The last song I want to talk about, um, is the final track of your new record. Um, the past is past. Um, and I think it comes back around to the feeling of acceptance and trying to be okay with the heartache and the realization that um, there's no turning back, you know, um, and that some things aren't meant to last, and that's okay. Because in the moment, that's really hard to process, but you... Um, I think are able to process things in such a beautiful and nuanced way. Um, and I'd love to know a little bit more about that song. Well, I wrote that song with Barry Dean and Luke Laird. And, um, and I remember the, the writing of that song feeling really amazing. Um, and we did a little demo, um, right just in Luke's office that day. Like he's, he can play a lot of things and is a great producer as well as a great songwriter. And, um, you know, it felt good. Uh, but it wasn't until I sent it to um, the A&R people I work with at Warner that I realized, oh, wow, this is really something. Because that was when they had been listening to a lot of my songs and loving a lot of songs. But that was when they when they were like, I think it's time to make a record. And so that song, it's interesting you would bring it up being the last song on the record. Um, that was th- that was kind of the centerpiece of the record for a long time. And it was what, you know, it was what the catalyst for what goes around this, you know, and, and that song being chosen is a huge part of, I think, why the album took on a, a, the nature of a breakup album. And so when I was making the record, we, we, we recorded that song first. And I mean, we went in, we did a pre-production uh, to today to see if the players that that Jay that Jay was thinking would work for this album and what we were going for would work, we did that song, and um, we worked on it all day and and loved you know loved what we had and then took a break and came back and made the record and as it was going on, Jay and I were talking and and um, I said, wouldn't it be something to start this album with? I'll be the sad song. And I was a little nervous to say it. Like my heart started beating fast because it's a ballad, and and I, you know I was afraid he might be like, "What are you kidding me? That's crazy!" Starting a song with a ballad. And, um, he's like, "Oh, I like that." He said, and then we could end it with "Past Is the Past," and I loved that idea. And so when we turned the record into the label, we sequenced it that way, and they wanted to flip them. They wanted "Past Is the Past" first, and "I'll Be the Sad Song" last. And and I when I get to that point. I listen to different voices because I'm so close to everything I don't know. But that was something I felt so strongly about. Like, that was the hill I was going to die on. And I said, no, it has to be. I mean, I respect you guys, and I know you want what's best for me in this record. But it, it has to be the last, it has to be the other way. It passes the past needs to finish this record. And they said, why? And I said, because I'll Be the Sad Song is sad. It ends with, you'll always be that song to me. And I love it because it's sad. And I said, past is the past is bittersweet. It's sad too, but you close on hope. And I think that's why that song resonates with me because there is a hope in it. It is like, okay, we're closing this chapter 
and I'm driving away and you won't be in my tomorrow morning, but you were here and you mattered. And I know I mattered to you, but that chapter's closed. And so I think that's why, not only that the song was important for the album, but the placement of it was important. This is where the past is the past, where the meant to be ain't meant to last, where the maybe we can work it out turns in, and maybe we can't. This is where the memories we made start catching dust in a picture frame, where the hope turns to know that there ain't no going back. This is where the Last impossible question. You're stranded on an island, and you only have five albums throughout history to bring with you for the rest of your life. What are those five albums? Great question. Uh, Patty Loveless' When Fallen Angels Fly. Uh, Patsy Cline's Greatest Hits. George Strait's Box Set. Tapestry, Carol King. I think I need something to bring me up at this point. Uh, this is going to seem out of left field, but I think probably, um, you know, maybe Jimmy Buffett's greatest hits. <laughs> hey, or Elton not? John. You know, I, I love a good Elton John record. But but at that point, those are pretty heavy records. I need something to lighten it up. We need the light with the darkness. Well, I'm glad we could uh, we could talk in this strange time. Uh, I'm I'm waving to you across the freeway right now. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I don't think you're going to play us a song, right? Or do you want to present a song? Uh, I have. It's pre-recorded. Okay. And that it'll get sent over with this with this record with this uh, interview. Which song is it? Bigger boat. And you got Randy Newman just hanging out in Agora Hills. No, right now, it's right? just me. I sang the whole. I I did it. You know, <laughs> I just did it without him. I mean, what could Randy be doing right now? Well, you know, he's probably writing songs, honestly. Yeah. That's what he does. Yes. Either all the way left or all the way right The only time we meet in the middle is to fight The rich get richer, the rest get a little more broke We're gonna need bigger There she goes, Miss Brandy Clark, everybody. You can go to brandyclarkmusic.com for her newest. It's called Your Life is a Record, and the deluxe version came out this year. Uh, Same Devil featuring Brandy Carlisle is also out now. So many tasty brandies, so little time. Uh, I apologize to Brandy and her fans for not putting this out sooner. I had a crazy computer and hard drive meltdown last year, and I just got this back. So thankfully, I was able to get this talk into the world before it was too late. If you want to check out the other cool podcasts on the Bluegrass Situation Network, you can check out The String, where Craig Havenhurst talked to Brandy back in June 2020. 
And if you go on the Bluegrass Situation on March 5th, you'll see that there was an article written about Lindsey Buckingham's song with Brandy Clark. She really teams with all the coolest people. Check that out, thebluegrasssituation.com. If you haven't supported your favorite bands and artists for Black Friday, Cyber Monday, however you call it, you can still do it, folks. 20% off DustBowlRevival.com. We have t-shirts and CDs and vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff you can bring home. Instead of funding more billionaire space travel, you can fund your favorite band to fly to Phoenix, where we're playing tonight at MIM, Musical Instrument Museum, Saturday night. We'll be back home at the Troubadour in L.A. And then finally, December 31st, New Year's Eve, finishing off 2021, playing the Fillmore Auditorium with Railroad Earth in Denver. As always, the show on the road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lubiton, associate producer Taylor Kaufman, and we are a part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you on the trail. Sharks in the water got me thinking about a movie quote. We're gonna need a bigger boat. Ah. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! Yeah! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.